Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and in our wonderful series of episodes that we we're doing, talking to the people who won their groups at the AKC National Championship back in December, we are very lucky to have today Tara Martin Rowell, who won the toy group with the Havanese Clark. Trupanion is the official pet insurance partner of both Pure Dog Talk and Westminster Kennel Club. I am thrilled to be attending Westminster this year, supporting Trupanion and their breeder support program. As the gold standard, Trupanion breeder support program partners have exclusive access to Trupanion's Go Home Day offer. Through these offers, Trupanion can provide owners and their new puppies with 30 days of immediate coverage and no waiting periods. Take a listen to this testimonial from breeder and veterinarian Dr. Karen Potter. When I became a true panion breeder and I sent my litters out, I knew that they were going with 30 days of coverage had one of my owners have an emergency with them. That's comforting to me as a breeder to know that they can get help. As a veterinarian, there are many cases where we have to make decisions on how to treat things based on financial restraints. And when the financial restraints come into play, we can't always do absolutely everything for that pet. So if my puppies are covered, at least for those first 30 days, I know that if they get sick, they can get the best possible care. So what about your pets? Connect with Trupanion or visit them at their Westminster booth to learn more about their exam day offer program, which can jumpstart coverage in the 24 hours after your next exam. If you'll be at Westminster, I'd love to meet with you and hear how Trupanion has helped you and your dogs. Book a time to connect with me at the show by going to my partner page at puredogtalk.com and receive a free gift for your time. Remember, when it comes to protecting your champion and their litters, Trupanion has got you covered. I am thrilled, Tara. Thank you so much for coming to join us. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So a little bit, 411, tell us your background. I know that you are at least second generation. So fill us in. So my mom grew up in Chicago and she, as a teenager, had started working for local handlers and going to some local dog shows. They had a collie. Wow. I didn't know collie. That's great. Everybody had a collie back then, I think, in the 50s, 60s, because he lassie. <laughs> seems like everybody I talked to at some point in their life back in those days had had a collie as a pet, but they would play dog show in their neighborhood. And my mother, very much like I am, the oldest also very, you know, had to win. She always won best in show with her collie. (laughs) In the neighborhood games, for sure. In, In the neighborhood pet dog show, yes. But that sparked her interest in going to dog shows on the weekends with handlers and just helping. And then right after college, she had worked with a woman who had bred standard schnauzers that wanted to get her more involved in dog shows and continue her interest in that. And so that's when my mom fell in love with the Maltese. Okay. 
so that goes back to now we've bred Maltese over 50 years under the Scylla prefix, which mm-hmm. is Scylla is a rock off the island of Malta that in Greek mythology barked to keep enemies away from the island. Nice. Between the rock and the hard place, that's between the Scylla and the Charybdis, because Charybdis was the whirlpool that would, as those sailors would get scared away from the island, they'd get sucked into the whirlpool. And so, you know, just basically a force to be reckoned with. So our kennel name does definitely have a meaning when it comes to what our chosen breed was. And anyone who has ever met Vicki Abbott can say, yes, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, I got a lot of that naturally, DNA, you know. Genetics is a thing. (laughs) That and the competitive spirit that we have. But, you know, so basically I was born into Maltese. My mom and dad had me right after my mom had kind of gotten involved in the breed. And so I know nothing as far as in my younger life, you know, it was all about the Maltese. And my mom was very successful, won the group at Westminster, had the top winning toy dog of all time of a Maltese that she actually handled. It's just a breed we've been well known in. She's written several books, traveled worldwide. That's how I got introduced into dog shows as a young child. Also, I got interested in some other breeds. In juniors, I showed an old English sheepdog as well as a Belgian sheepdog and the Maltese. Again, a newsflash I did not know. We had the top winning female and male Belgian sheepdog of all time at one point that were from Heike Worley's line of Belgians, the Inchala. Belgian okay. sheep out of Elgin, Illinois. And then the old English sheepdogs, we had a little bit of a partnership with Joy Kelly, who lives mm-hmm. here in the Dallas area with Tojo, old English sheepdogs that were very famous at that time. And so, you know, growing up, we went to dog shows every weekend. My mom was a handler. And when she married Larry, we also had Shelties, mm-hmm. which my aunt was a Sheltie breeder, ex-president of the Shetland Sheepdog Club of America. So Throwing all these little tidbits in, you understand I come from a very dog show, purebred family. So that's where, you know, the passion comes about. I was very successful in juniors. And then when it's time to go to college, I wanted to go work for handlers. And that's what I want to do is be a professional handler. And my mom said, nope, you're going to college. And that's something that I always say when people ask me, I think it's very important, especially today for our younger generation to at least get some sort of a business degree. If you want to handle dogs, you've got to know how to do the business side of it too. Because it's not just the glamour and the walking in the ring and the winning. I mean, that's a very small portion of it. Yes. Clients and the business side, being able to do your billing every month, you know. Husbandry, animal husbandry. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot involved as well. So in college, my major was political science and I minored in English literature. I've always been a big reader. And so I've read a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of old dog books that helped, you know, bring in a lot of the old ideas about breeding and becoming, because I am a breeder first before anything else. And learned a lot from a lot of the, you know, our longtime breeders, if you just read and pay attention. Okay. So what's your favorite old dog book? I think Dog Steps would be the one Mm -hmm. I would say. Everybody has to read. And I think that you should reread it as you get older, especially aspiring to judge. Even if you've been judging, I still think structure and anatomy is so important in a breeding program because in a breed like my main breed being Maltese, I think people get away from the structure and the anatomy because they think the hair is so important, which the hair is very important. 
but it's one piece of the puzzle that makes the whole puzzle work. And you can't have one without the other. So you are preaching to the choir. Even toy breeds have to be able to walk. I mean, it's so important. They're going to go in a pet home, maybe. They still have to be able to jump on and off the couch or whatever it is they're going to do. Well, in our Maltese, the one that I lost not that long ago, that was my heart dog. He lived to be almost 19. They live a long time if they're healthy Mm -hmm. and well. Mm -hmm. Barring any major, you know, health issues that certain breeds have, I think if your dedication is to breed a dog that's sound, you know, and has good structure, that's really your basis. That's your foundation of the dog itself. So those are things that I've learned over the years, you know, that I think are more important. The other book that I think is really important is Richard Beauchamp's Five Elements of Breed Type. That's very, a very, very important book. Without understanding those elements of breed type, that's what makes each breed a specific breed. Yes. And just because you're out there showing, you know, your Pomeranian doesn't mean you can't sit and be interested in what's going on in the German Shepherd ring. You know, when I was a kid, because my parents were handlers and we were there all day long, and I'd go and I'd well, I'd help Bobby Peebles. I'd go help Mark Kemp. I'd go help Guy Malden with the Shelties. I mean, you know, we were running around helping back in that day. We weren't superstars, you know, in juniors, yes, but we were learning. And I think we've lost that a little bit in recent generations. Mm-hmm. And it disappoints me some. Mm-hmm. When I now that truly have a fascination and a passion for the sport and the actual dogs and breeding and how all that works, I'm impressed with them because it's yes. environment. So I'd really like to see that change in our sport. I cannot agree with you more. My stump speech, we are not just running around in left-handed circles wearing St. John. There's a lot to this. And one of the things that we need to do better is build the husbandry, the dogmanship. Foundation of what our sport is supposed to be about. And I do feel that sometimes we get away from that a little bit, you know, with I agree. With a lot of the pomp and circumstance that goes on. And that's why shows like Morrison Essex and just recently you and I were involved and I'm a member mm-hmm. of Chicago International. I mean, shows like that back that education to the public as well. Yes. Very, very important as our sport goes forward. And I think that we have had some very successful events in the last several years that have helped with that cause. Well, just this weekend, it looked like the Javits, the Meet the Breeds at Javits Center looked like it was crazy successful. That's exciting because it's mm-hmm. new, but we also have that many people in our sport still very passionate to go and make that Let's face it, Javits Center is not easy to do, and you live around the area. It's nice, and it was very nice of the people that were involved and the breeders that took the time to take their dogs there and share that. 100%. That's what we've got to do. So just real quick, other than dogs, after college, I went on and I was in sales. I sold semiconductors. What's your computer chips? Yeah, cool. So I did that for about 17 years. I managed several different territories and traveled a lot with that. But also still kept my showing of my dogs. I had clients that I would show for as well as it being my hobby, but I never stopped showing the dogs. My mom said, you have to get a job. You got to do this. You got to go to college. And if you still want to do the dogs after that, then go for it. And I think when you have a passion like many of us do for the sport, it doesn't go away. So here we are. are. I mean, my college education is why I now can do this when I'm retired and can't run around the ring, right? I mean, that's a thing. You know, I do a lot of things. 
I've produced documentaries. I've worked with Animal Planet. I produced a documentary about Westminster Kennel Club for three years called Crowned with Fox Sports. I work with David Fry. You know, those are all opportunities I never would have had if it hadn't been for being involved in the dog sport. One of my favorite stories is I was invited to Italy to do a grooming seminar and my husband and I went and I did a grooming seminar for a whole day there in a vineyard in Italy. Nice. Kind of flowing from the vineyard. And I had probably a hundred people there who brought their Catans, their Maltese, their Bichons, their Havanese, their Poodles. I mean, it was just like, did I die and go to heaven? <laughs> right. Well, and I think that is such a valid point that we get opportunities that we wouldn't otherwise when we are able to combine dog knowledge and education and experience with other outside interests and why, as you say, go to college, get a degree, get a job, then bring it all back together is so genius. Well, who are watching this, I started my life picking up a lot of poop. Yes. A lot of dog crates. lot of dogs that I never walked in the ring with, doing a lot of holding of dogs, doing a lot of keeping my mouth shut. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into that process of success, you know? Yep. Yep. So speaking of the work that goes into the process of success, you just had success with a Havanese. You've had success with many, many coded breeds over the years, including the Maltese. So talk us through, give us your five best tips for keeping a coded dog in the best condition to win at the highest level. Five top tips. Well, you know, obviously every drop coat has a different type of coat. So, you know, how I, a Maltese is very different for how I would care for a Havanese. Mm -hmm. But let's talk towards about the Havanese since that's, you know, what right. I currently have done well with. Really with a dog like that, they have a double coat and they call it a double silk coat. And if you brush through it every day, mist it with a light moisturizer during the days that I call maintenance days. You know, maintenance days are the days that you're not actively showing the dog. He gets a bath every morning before a show and blown out. You have to be very conscious of the environment that you're in. If you are in the Pacific Northwest and it's cold outside and all you are is in a heated room and it's dry, you know, you're going to use a more moisturizing type of shampoo. You can use whitening shampoos. You have to be careful that they're not going to be too drying or that you use them too often. Then the day you get home, they get a full bath again to bathe out any of the products that you've used in their hair, like, you know, anti-static spray or hairspray or anything like that. They get a full bath again, but in a different type of shampoo, possibly something that's even more moisturizing because then every day you're going to brush through them, you know, line brush every day. He gets his head and his face rebanded twice a day. Twice a day. Okay. Yep. Brushed through, rebanded twice a day. And we use maintenance bands for that. The little smaller, I get them from Susan Giles at Palmarks. She's okay. got every dog, everything coat related, anything you need. I highly recommend her and the products that she sells. And she knows what she's doing because she also has losses. But right. really a Havanese is a little bit for me easier than a Maltese because I don't wrap them. I was just going to say, you don't have to wrap the Havanese. No, you know, just keeping them brushed through every day with the moisturizing spray is usually all you need. I don't believe in keeping dogs in pens. My dogs run around my house all day long. The Clark is trained to go on a pee pad, mm -hmm. you know, if he can't go outside. 
I don't usually let them outside a lot on the concrete because that can break their hair on the ends. And a Maltese is usually wrapped, rewrapped twice a day, brushed through, wrapped twice a day. When we're home, they're in a, either an oil or a conditioner. It only takes me about maybe 30, 40 minutes to wrap a whole dog. But I mean, I've done it my whole life, you know, a million times. I mean, they run around the house. I mean, I do not believe in keeping a dog in a pen just to save their hair. I don't think that's right. Also, I treadmill Clark. Whenever I have a dog that I'm campaigning and we're traveling a lot and they don't have the ability to get as much exercise because we're at a show and they may be in a crate while we're at the show or, you know, on the table getting groomed, I tread twice a day when I'm at home. And then the one thing I try to do at a hotel at night is, you know, you get back to the hotel and just throw the toy around. You know, they've got to get that exercise. I find there are some toy dogs that are campaigned and you can tell over time that maybe they're not getting the exercise they need. And I think that's also really important, you know, just because they're a little dog doesn't mean they don't need the exercise too. I love to see a toy dog in good muscle, right? Like, I just love that. And when you feel that, you're just like, Mm -hmm. okay, that makes me smile because then I think, okay, get this person gets it, you know, because that's the epitome of health. And then obviously their diet is really important, you know. I personally have always fed Purina Pro Plan for 25 years now. That's all I feed my dogs. I feed the different variations. My dog, Tommy, that lived to be 19, that's all he was ever on. It works for me. may not work for everyone. Um, you know, and I throw a little fresh pet in there. And I have a little tip that I have shared with people, and it's the dehydrated carrots. And if you don't know about dehydrated carrots, you get them on Amazon, and it's a brand called Olewo, O-L-E-W-O. It's for dogs, for perfect Mm -hmm. poops. And it really works. I love this. And I can't tell since I've been using it. And you just follow the directions on the back how to, you have to rehydrate. Rehydrate it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this one bag will last you, you know, for a while. And you just sprinkle a little bit on top of their food and it's all natural, you know, so it's not going to hurt them at all. And it works. So that's a tip for you that seems to be working very well for the dogs. I love it. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. I hear from folks pretty much daily asking for a specific topic or for a series of podcasts on a topic. So ask and you shall receive. (laughs) I've done all the hard work. I've sorted, searched, and compiled eight different albums from the archives on our most popular topics. And when I say there's a podcast for that, I ain't just a woofin'. Getting yours today is super simple. Just jump on puredogtalk.com backslash store and click the PDT albums image. And when you're in there, you're going to find a collection of veterinary voices. You're going to find a collection for breeding and whelping hands-on. You'll find Pure Dog Talk University on dog breeding. Love the breeds. Up your game. Owner handlers, the interviews, events and sports. There is so much there. And once you're in those links, you'll be able to read the details of the topic. For a special introductory price of a buck ninety-nine, you get a link to dozens, up to more than a hundred episodes 
on these specific topics. And while you're there, if you or a friend or family member are just getting started, even just starting a search for your first well-bred purebred dog, you can also check out Auntie Laura's Beginner's Guide to Show Dogs at puredogtalk.com backslash book to get the foundational Pure Dog Talk episodes with bonus tracks. So hop on it, y'all. These special prices will not last. So now the next one, I know I see this question all the time. I guarantee you've answered it 28,000 times, but now you get to answer it on Pure Dog Talk. Eye staining. What's our tip for keeping away, and if you have to, removing eye staining in your white-coated breeds? Well, so a lot of tear stain is hereditary in a lot of dogs. So my line of Maltese, I don't get tear stain. (laughs) I will get tear stain, however, on a special that I'm showing that I'm going to different parts of the United States because allergies do play into that. The most important thing is to have them on bottled drinking water not distilled, but bottled drinking water. And always, it doesn't have to be the same brand, but always bottled drinking water. Because as you travel, even at home, they change your water. They just change the water in the city I live in. And there's more chemicals or something in it. And those things are not good for the dog. So bottled drinking water doesn't have to be Evian or Fiji. It can be just, you know, but don't use distilled. That's number one. Number two, I get the eye drops that are called refresh. Mm-hmm. Don't get anything that says takes the red out because that constricts their blood vessels in their eye. But I put eye drops in their eyes twice a day to flush them out. Mm-hmm. And then there is a product that Tony and Fabian with Starfire Palms, it's an eye powder that they make. It's Starfire Powder is what it's called. Okay. But I put that where they would make a little bit like after I put the eye drops in, put that. And it seems to help. You know, I know I'm very good at bleaching dogs if I have to, but I consider that as a last resort because Mm -hmm. the minute you start bleaching, you've got to continue bleaching and you've got to excessively hydrate and moisturize and really pay attention to that hair, you know, not breaking. There's a lot involved once you start bleaching. So avoiding it. That's why we're trying to avoid it. Yeah. Some dogs, you take them to the vet and I find this happens in pets a lot more so I've heard, that might have tear duct issues. And mm-hmm. then the veterinary issue, of course, if they have tear duct issues that are causing them to tear and have the staining. But right. those three things, the bottled water, the eye drops, and then the powder. I mean, and you can even use cornstarch too. It's not as effective, but you can. Doing those things with the eyes twice a day seems to really help. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. That's always, I hear that one a lot. and if you can avoid it avoid the bleaching okay so i want to go deep dive a little bit more with you because i just came off of a weekend of talking about form and function and you brought that up in regard to toy dogs and i think this is again i was talking to another toy dog handler at a seminar and she went into it at some point but i want to go more talk about why and where you emphasize what structure? Are we talking fronts? Are we talking rears? Are we talking top lines, length of body? I understand there's a broad spectrum of toy breeds, but let's talk about those pieces, the structure pieces, and how you're incorporating that into the breeding program. Well, let me talk more towards Maltese because that's mm-hmm. what yep. so I've had Havanese ever since they were accepted to AKC and have bred my own litters years ago. But I'm obviously, I'm on Judge's Ed for Maltese and Perfect. all that. 
you know, the Maltese Theater is actually pretty easy. A Maltese is a square dog from the withers to the base of the tail to the ground. But then they should have a depth of chest. They should have a good rib spring and not be what I would call slab-sided. They need to have that rib spring. Right. Not too long in the Their tail, it needs to be an extension of their spine and not drop off the back of their butt. Tails that drop off the back of the butt, usually the rear's not where it needs to be. Your shoulders are typically not where they need to be. You know, things that are really important is shoulder layback. Shoulder layback to me is one of the most important things in any breed of dog. I'm not sure that there's any breed that you wouldn't consider where that shoulder layback is to be part of the correct structure of that standard. And that's very important as far as to how the front sits, the depth of chest, you know, you don't want them elbow out. Well, and that beautiful neck that you have on a Maltese, you can't get that if you don't have your shoulders in the right spot. Exactly. And you don't want a neck that's like this. You don't want a 90 degree. Those shoulders are not in the right place if that neck is at a 90 degree or you necked. And right. I think we're losing in a lot of breeds in the sport right now, and maybe for quite some time is something that's a unit that looks all this and, you know, whatever might look appealing. It is not correct. That is not correct. A dog should not move around the ring in my breed with its head way up in the air. It should have some forward movement. Otherwise, those shoulders are not in the right place. 100%. You know, I mean, I think it's just, obviously, we try to get as perfect as we can. And there's always going to be things that we can change. But your basic goal in that structure are those basic the right make and shape, shoulders in the right place, the tail sets neat, and the tail carriages need to be in the right place. The way their carriage of themselves in general will be correct if all those pieces are in the right place. And then you have a, what, five, six pound dog that's still going to be sound and structurally healthy long into its 19 year lifespan. <laughs> From three pounds to seven pounds. Okay. And it's four to six is preferred. But when you think about that, a three-pound dog versus a seven-pound dog, that's more than half as big. But in our standard, we say overall quality to be favored over size, which I think is true with a lot of breeds. Overall right. should be favored as long as there's not a disqualification. Right. A 10-pound Maltese would be really big. Well, it's what? not a disqualification, but <laughs> it be considered extreme. And in our, we use the word moderate or moderation. Mm. Times, that would be considered extreme. Yes. <laughs> I'm not allowed to weigh it, but I could probably look at it and tell you it's 10 pounds. Right. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So final point that I wanted to touch on, the process of campaigning a dog. And I always love to hear from different people because everybody has their different theories. Like I had a theory, you have a theory, Kelly Shep's got a theory. Talk to me about your theory of campaigning a dog to reach that stratosphere, like that high top five in the group sort of level. Talk about some of the steps that you go through with that. I have to say this, that I grew up with campaigning top dog. Mm -hmm. So many things to me are probably second nature. Right. Things that I was taught many, 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 many years ago by my mother, Jimmy Moses, Michael Cantalizo. I mean, all these people that I would see campaigning these top, top dogs, quirky room. I mean, you know, just different things that you would see. And I've always been very fortunate to have people that have backed my dogs that have been well-known people in the sport. And so 
having that partnership has always been helpful because you put a little bit of what your ambitions and your goals are into what their ambitions and their goals are. And, you know, like the first backer that I ever had was Roger Reckler of Grandeur Afghans. And he had obviously campaigned many, many, many top dogs over the years. And he had a formula that worked for him and we worked together to achieve the goals that we were trying to achieve. Then I worked for Ron Scott who had a dog that went best in show at Westminster, you know, mm-hmm. with Spice Girl, with Cause. And he, Ron, had bred Yorkies with his wife, Barbara, for many, many years. Interesting. But knowing them and competing with them as friends. And so we were always friends first. And I think it's a business, but I think having the same goals as the person that's spending the bulk of the money is very important. I really have never had anyone that I've worked with to campaign a dog that we have not had the same goals. But I think in the beginning of deciding this is the dog that I think, you know, is worthy of doing this type of winning, this dog is worthy of being seen. I think in the beginning of anything is that you just have to agree on what the ultimate goal is. I'm not sure if that quite answers your question. Right. No. And that makes sense. It really is important, the goal setting, and I think that's part of it, is, okay, I know what I have. So start with, I know what I have, and then what can I accomplish? What are my goals for the dog that I have in front of me? And I'm trusting each other in that relationship, trusting me as the handler to know where to show that dog, what judges I think will appreciate that dog, giving me the opportunity to show the dog to the judges that I think will appreciate the dog. I don't know. It's easier for me to maybe give new people that are trying to figure out how to create a campaign. Mm -hmm. It's to give them the advice of things that you need to make sure that the person that's doing this understands, you know, this is how much this is going to cost. And this is what is to be expected. And by the way, you're not going to win every time just because you spent this money. You could spend and maybe the fancy doesn't appreciate that dog or can get very surprised and have everybody just go, oh my God, this dog is amazing. I mean, you just don't know. Dog shows are so very subjective and some of it is trendy sometimes. A dog catches fire that you're like, where did that come from? And I mean, there's some new breeds that as you Mm. are well aware that all of a sudden, oh wow, like the first time I ever saw Josie the Spinoni, I was like, that's a pretty damn cool dog that I'm not a judge because I'd be like, (laughs) but that happens that people, Mm -hmm. and I use her as an example, because that's probably been one of my most recent of a breed that I'm Mm -hmm. not with. I also think that educating people on that breed that you're showing and why Mm. it's the best one in your mind. Yep. Like this is the best Havanese in my mind because he has the right slight rise in his top line. He has the right flash of pad coming at you. Right as the right beautiful head. He's mm-hmm. not too short-backed. He's the right make and shape. You know, mm-hmm. his coat is what is desired in the breed. The dog has a lot to offer to the breed. I think when you're going to spend the money to campaign a dog, those are the things that you have to explain and agree with the person who's helping you spend the money. Because let's face it, it's very, very, very expensive to campaign a dog. So throw the people a bone. What's a round figure? What's a budget number that you can talk about? I don't know that. I I know what was spent on some of the campaigns I've been involved with. And I mean, I don't need you to divulge other people's money, but it's a six-figure item. 
I know of dogs that have had over half a million dollars spent on their campaign. Mm-hmm. And they've ended up very top dogs. But, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Now, it, there are people away from doing it because you can also have very top dogs that you don't spend that kind of money. You know, I mean, it's just all about what your goals are where you want to go, how long you want to do it, how often you want to show the dog, you know, I mean, there's just so many factors involved. And I think for me, the biggest thing and what I used to always tell my clients is set your goal. What do you want to have? How much do you have to spend? How much time are you willing to do this? How long are you willing to do it with the dog? How long can the dog hold up to it? I think is a piece that needs to be asked. That's always a piece that was in my conversation. The difference between showing a male or showing a female as well. Obviously, some breeds, you can show a female, she can go have puppies, she come back and still be shown. That's mm-hmm. not true for like a Maltese. You have to be cut our puppies because the puppies can, you know, get caught up in the hair and die. So once mm-hmm. that bitch is ready to be bred as a Maltese, that's probably the end of her career. Not that you couldn't do it and not that it hasn't been done. It's just not common to do that. Yeah. There's some breeds that they mature later in life, like poolies, like skipper keys. It's not unusual to see a skipper key out there being shown at eight years old or nine years old. That's how that breed matures. And that, in that case, you could say for this dog, I have these goals, but you have a lot longer of a period of time possibly Mm -hmm. to achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. But it is very important. The very number one question to ask is, what is your goal? Again, I've talked to many, many, many new people that have wanted to, in fact, I'm talking to a few now that have wanted to get involved in the sport and be financially backing. And you just have to be very honest with them about what all these expenses are. I mean, there's photos, there's entries, you know, there's things you don't even think about that are part of the expenses that add up very quickly. Very quickly. (laughs) As you know, being in the sport, I mean, I'm happy to pay the entries. They keep these clubs going, not complaining about the cost of entries one bit, but it is an expense that does add Mm -hmm. up. You know, nowadays we have four and five day clusters. I mean, you could go to five, 20 shows in one month. Easily. At $30 on average per show. I mean, you know, that's $600 right there on entries for one dog. You know, there's just things like that. I think that you have to be very detailed when you're talking. And then the other thing that I would highly, highly recommend to anyone that's new into getting involved with someone who's backing their dog is to be very communicative. You've got to communicate every day how that dog did. You need to take time for that person. Sometimes we don't feel like spending an hour talking after we've shown, fine. Set a day that you have for that owner that you can take the time to do that. Mm -hmm. That communication and making them feel involved, I think keeps them involved. Yeah. Communication is key. I think that is a super great point to pull forward because I do think that little skin in the game, right? Ownership. So, and that comes with communication. All right. Well, Tara, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate your time and good luck this week. I know you are very involved with the, I'm going to get it wrong, Heart Association, American Heart Association. So Clark's owner, one of his owners, Nancy Brown, she also has a Bichon. I showed her Bichons for her as well. She is the CEO of the American Heart Association. And so we have an event in New York called the Red Dress Collection. And it's usually the event that kicks off Fashion Week in New York. 
We usually were able to go to it right before Westminster, but it hasn't been in New York for several years because of the pandemic. So we're having a night at the Lincoln Center and we'll be there. And then my husband and I will drive on to some local shows up there while we're there. And then next weekend, lo and behold, there's not a dog show to be had in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) I'm considering a trip to Tahoe that weekend. I'm just saying. (laughs) That ever happened in the last, what, 20 years? I I know. It's insanity. All right, my dear. Very good to talk to you. Have a great day. All right, you too. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.